Good morning, everybody. Uh, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 22. Probably down a little. Matthew 22 will be in verses 1 through 14. Matthew 22, 1 through 14. So today we come to the end of our study of the parables. This will be the, the last one that we're going to do. Um, th- there was a couple, If you, some of you may think, well, what about this parable or what about that? There's a couple of other parables that I didn't cover, but they, had, they either had the same meaning or the same purpose or the same application as uh, one that I had done previously. So, you know, I looked at them and I thought, well, it's just, it would kind of be redundant to go over that again. So we will we'll finish up today with the parable of the wedding feast, Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Now, before we get to this parable... Starting in Matthew 22, we need to back up into Matthew 21 um, and talk a little bit about the context. And remember, uh, we talked about this last week in Matthew 21, 9 through 11. This is Passion Week. Uh, this, is the, this is the week that Jesus comes into Jerusalem for the last time. This is the week that he's going to be uh, crucified and killed. Um, and, of course, he will eventually rise from the dead. Now, this is Palm Sunday. Uh, before uh, uh, the crucifixion on Friday, he comes into the city. This is when everybody lays the palms and, and says, Hosanna to the son of David. The whole town is stirred up. Remember, it's Passover week, so the people are flooding in. It's a lot of activity, a lot of excitement. And the whole town is stirred up because, of course, Jesus is, is coming in. Now, we know that on that day, uh, Mark, I think, tells us that he goes into the temple. It was late in the day. He looks around, and then he leaves and goes over to Bethany, uh, probably to stay with Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus. So the next day, he comes back to the temple, uh, enters in, and this is the day that he overturns all the, the, the money changers and all the buyers and sellers and, and things like that. And then we also know from Matthew twenty one fourteen to 17 that after he does that, he stays in the temple and he begins to do some healing. Some of the blind and the lame begin to come to him and he's healing them. Um, and the children are, are crying out, Hosanna is the son of David, or Hosanna to the son of David, which we back then meant Messiah, right? Hosanna to the Messiah. And again, once that was over, he leaves, goes back over to Bethany, uh, stays there once again, probably with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, the next day, he comes back, and as I said last week, by this time, the Pharisees, the, the scribes, the elders, they're in a panic, uh, they think, they see a, basically a religious revolution is about to happen, that, that the, whole, the whole world is going to follow this guy, they're going to lose their power, they're going to lose their authority. And so they decide, we got to do something about this. So they confront him and say, by what authority do you do these things? And you remember what we talked about last week. He said, I tell you what I'll do, I'll ask you a question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or men? And they, of course, knew if we say it's from heaven, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe him when he said that I am the Lamb of God? Or if you say it's from men, they were scared, well, the people will all turn against us, so we can't say that. So they take the coward's way out, and they say, we don't know. And he says, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to tell you anything else. And as we said last week, with that statement, he literally flips off the light of revelation for those men. Um, it's over for them. Later on, uh, I think if you get to, I don't remember which chapter is, maybe 23, you, the whole chapter is, woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. I mean, the whole chapter is just these declarations of woe. It's over for, for them. 
Now, at that point, he tells them two parables, and it is directed directly at them. And as we said last week, these parables are not meant to reveal truth to them. It's not meant to, to call them to repentance. That time is past. That time is over. These are parables of, of judgment. Now, the first one uh, that we went over last week was the parable of the two sons. And you remember in Matthew 21, Jesus basically said, Look, truly I say to you, Pharisee, truly I say to you, scribe, elder, uh, ruler of the, of the religious church, to, to, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes will go into the kingdom before, before you do. And when he's done with that parable, he immediately turns to a second parable of judgment, the parable of the two tenants. And again, this is all in Matthew 21. And again, if they didn't quite get it, he said to them, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. So both of these parables are not calling them to repentance. It's not like, man, if I just, if I just try one more time, maybe they'll change their mind. It, no. No, these are parables of judgment. They are pronouncing judgment on these men. Now, at the very end, and I believe it's the last two verses of chapter 21. If you want to flip back, you can see that. It says this, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard, this par or heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. At least they had enough common sense to figure that out, because that was true. Verse 46, And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now, situations like this, where the Pharisees and Jesus come into conflict and they want to arrest him, they want to kill him, that's their, that's their end game. That's, this is what they've been about for the last three years. They want this guy dead. They want this guy put away. They want this guy dealt with. And this has happened over and over and over again. But over and over again, Jesus has gotten out of it. For example, in John 7... It says they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, for his hour had not yet come. In other words, it wasn't time for him to die. He still had more stuff to do, more stuff to teach. Um, so it just wasn't his time. But you see, this time is different. This is his time. This is Passion Week. He, he has a date. You know, I think the, uh, one of the Psalms says that the date of our death has been set before we were ever born. The, the date you're going to die... Sometimes I, you know, we all worry about this, but you know, the date you're going to die, is, it's already been set. You can't move it up. You can't push it back. It's going to happen. You can't change it. It's already been set. So we, Jesus is going to die on this Friday, okay? It is his time. So this time he comes to Jerusalem and he's not trying to get out of it. He's not trying to pass through. He's not trying to, to, to put this off for another week. This is the final conflict. So when they're sitting there, he knows they want to arrest him. He's just pronounced these two parables of judgment. So what does he do? Well, he immediately tells another parable. And this brings us to chapter 22 and this third parable that he's going to tell them again. And this is the parable of the wedding feast. Let's read verses 1 through 2. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, just as always, we, if you don't know anything else that's come out of this study, the parables are about what? The kingdom of God. Every single parable is teaching something about the kingdom of God. And this time, Jesus says the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven can be compared 
to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, in this parable, the king, of course, is, is, is introduced. He's the main character in this parable. He's introduced right off the bat. And remember, in that society, not, you know, today we have, we have you know, uh, presidents and, and czars and other types of things, but in that day, they had kings. And the king was at the top of the heap. He was the, uh, he was the highest authority you could have within a nation and within a culture or within, a, um, uh, within a, a particular land. Now, this king made a wedding feast for his son. Now, as we've said before, in that day, life wasn't overly exciting, right? We got a lot of things today to kind of distract us. We've got sports, we've got shopping, we've got television, we've got the internet, you can, we all got fishing, hunting, we've got all kind of hobbies. But that, that, in that day and time, when you got up in the morning, you were just trying to live to the next day. Life was pretty dim. Life was pretty dreary. There wasn't a lot of celebrating that went on. So one of the highlights of life in that day would be a wedding. Whenever there was a wedding, that was a big deal. It was the kind of the social event that everybody got together. You know, there was wine and dancing and fellowship. It was, it, it kind of... For just a little while, you put aside your dim, dreary life that you're just trying to, to survive. So look at verse 3. And so this king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Now, what does that mean, to call those who were invited? Now, remember, in that day, they didn't live by a clock and a calendar like we do. When you think about it, everything we do is on a clock and a calendar, isn't it? I mean, unless you, you're like my dad and he's don't even know what day-to-day is, right? Other than the fact we're here in church, he just, you know, he's retired. He don't really do nothing. Anyway, um, but, in that, but most of us that actually work, we have to live by a clock and a calendar. Everything. But in, back, in that day, it wasn't like that at all. They didn't live by clocks and by calendars. There's no phones. There's no refrigeration. So, so things were entirely different. So if you were going to give a marriage feast... What you would do is you would pre-invite your guest weeks before the time actually came. You wouldn't send out an invitation and say, okay, on March the 2nd at 7 p.m. It didn't work that way, right? Again, there's no phones, there's no refrigeration, nobody lives by the calendar. You would pre-invite and you'd say, hey, so-and-so, my son's getting married and I want to invite you to the, to the feast. Will you come, yes or no? And you kind of find out how many people are going to uh, are going to come, and then you begin to prepare. And then once everything is ready for the feast, then you go and go get them. You send out a servant, and you say, okay, it's time now. Everybody remember us talking about that in one of our other parables? That's just the way it works. So you pre-invite, and then when the time comes, when you've got everything ready, you send out and say, it's time now. Because listen, once the oxen are killed, once the calves are killed, you've got to eat them. There's no, you can't just put it in the freezer and save it for a week or two. They, they've got to be eaten then. And so that's what this man did. When the time came, he sent out and called those who were invited and said, okay, we're ready. Y'all come, y'all come now. Now, I want you to imagine being invited by a king to come to the celebration of his son. That would be a great honor, especially in, in that day. I, like I said, when, you're, when it was really something to be excited about, something... Uh, to look forward to. And by the way, because he went back and called these guests, all of these pre-invited guests had evidently accepted. 
because he wouldn't have went back to say, now it's time to come. So they had all accepted this, this pre-invitation. And look at verse 3 again. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now this, be quite honest, seems inconceivable that they would not come. After all, this isn't just, this isn't just the, some neighbor. This is the king. This is the palace. This is the, the, the feast. This is the king's son. This is the, this is the social event, not of the year, but of a, of a lifetime, to actually be invited to the marriage feast of a king's son. Yet the Bible tells us in the parable they would not come. Look at verse 4. So he sent other servants saying... Now remember, the first time he sends them out, he said, y'all come, it's time, and they won't come. So he sends other servants, and he says, tell those who are invited, look, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. In other words, you can almost see this king thinking, well, maybe, maybe my servants didn't explain it right, so I'm going to send other servants. Or, or, or maybe these people were just sick and just didn't get, you know, what, why would they not come? It's just, it's just inconceivable. I mean, again, who in their right mind would not come to this? So he sends other servants with a clearer explanation. And he, he said, look, remind them, give them more detail. Tell them, I've killed multiple oxen. I've killed multiple calves. Again, you can't put this stuff up. We don't, I don't have a freezer. This has got to be eaten now. Tell them to come to the wedding feast. Look at verse 5. It says, But they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. Now I want you to notice something about this first group of people. They're, they're not, their problem is they're not hostile. They don't hate the king. They, they're just completely indifferent. Right? They don't care. In other words, they're saying, my farm is more important than the king's feast. My business is more important than the king's feast. My family, my, my football team, my whatever. Basically, anything is more important than, than that. They're, you're just not worth my time. Everybody see me. They're just completely indifferent. They got other things that they want to deal with. They're, they're completely indifferent to the king's invitation. Again, it's not that they're evil. It's not that they're mean. It's not that they got bad attitudes. It's not that they're ugly. They, they might be good people. They're just indifferent. By the way, how many people know somebody just like that? Good people. They're good family people. They, they, they love their family. They pay their taxes. They're good citizens. They're good people. But when it comes to the king, they are completely indifferent. They just don't, they just don't care. And of course, they insult the king. On the other hand... Some of these people are just plain nasty. Look at verse 6. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now, as you read this, you're thinking, why would they do that? It's just a wedding invitation, right? He's not, they're not coming to collect taxes. They're coming to be invited to a wedding feast, and they get killed. Now, immediately I want to know, well, well, why would they do that? Why would they treat them like that? Well, the reason why is because they hate the king. You see, they hate the king's authority. They hate what the king stands for. They hate the fact that he is in authority over them. They hate the fact that they have to submit to him. They just hate the king. 
So any excuse they have, they're going to be hostile to the king. And in this case, they kill his, uh, his representatives. Now, by the way, both of these groups are still around today. You've got people out there in the world, as I just mentioned, that are just indifferent. Not bad people. Not mean people. They don't hate God. They don't hate Jesus. They don't, they don't hate. But they just don't care. They're not interested at all in the king and his invitation to come celebrate the sun. On the other hand, you've got people out there that they hate God. And they'll do anything to, to they just, they don't want anything to do with him, but they're not indifferent. They hate him. They'll actually go out of their way to, to, to bash him, or they'll go out of the way to put him down, or they'll go out, out of their way to mistreat his servants. So we got these two different groups, the indifferent and the evil. And one of the things that we have to see is that even though they're two completely different groups, they're going to end up exactly the same. Look at verse 7. So the king was angry, and he sent his troops, and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Now listen, when he says they're not worthy, he's not saying that they had some kind of intrinsic worthiness. Remember, there were some people, some of them were just bad people. Others were probably good people. What made them not worthy is they refused the king's invitation. They refused his kindness. They refused his grace. That's what made them, them not worthy. Now, at this point, let's, let's be honest. This is a pretty easy parable to understand, right? The king is God. The Son is Jesus Christ. Those that are pre-invited to the wedding feast are, of course, the Jews. Okay? They, they're the ones that's been pre-invited down through time. And, and just as in Israel in that day, there were Jews who were indifferent. There were Jews who were hostile. And, and listen, I, don't, I can't, I was reading as I was studying this. Remember what the king said? Let me back up real quick. He said he sent his troops, he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, whether this is specifically speaking to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., I can't say, but it sure sounds like it. Do you understand that in 70 A.D., just some 30-some-odd years later from the time that Jesus told this parable, the Roman army under Vespasian would come against Jerusalem. They would lay siege to it. They would murder over a million Jews. They would sell over 100,000 into slavery, and they would burn that place to the ground. In fact, when you go to Israel today, all that's left is the Western Wall. That's it. Everything else was burnt to the ground, just completely destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The city was destroyed. And it's just what he said, and that king was angry. And he let his army go and destroy that city and kill those murderers. Now, again, I don't know for sure if Jesus is prophesying about that, but that's exactly what happened. You see, guys, God's judgment is real. We've just come out of the Christmas season. I was thinking about this the other day. I was watching uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Everybody like that movie? I love that movie. And I watch it, you know, every year I see that movie come on, and I, and I watch it. It's just such a feel-good movie, right? And you've got all these good people, right? Everybody's good, and and just real neighborly, and loves each other, and they all pitch in and, and save the guy. But you see, those people are indifferent to the king. They're indifferent to the king. Are, are you with me? See, that it, it's not enough to be a good person. It's not enough to, to be neighborly. It's not enough to, to not be a bad person, not to hate the king. 
See, if you're indifferent to the king, you're lumped into the same judgment as those that are evil. See, there is a limit to God's patience. That was true then, and it's still true today. If you are indifferent to his invitation to celebrate his son, judgment will fall. It's coming. It's only a matter of time. You see, God doesn't change. When he calls the world to celebrate his son, he's going to punish the indifferent, and he's going to punish the hostile. They are both going to be found unworthy. But God will not be frustrated. Look at verse 9. So the king says... Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Okay? Now, what he's saying here is go out and invite just anybody you come across. I don't care about race. I don't care about creed. I don't care about ethnicity. I don't care about gender. I don't care if they're rich. I don't care if they're poor. I don't care if they're Jew. I don't care if they're Gentile. Invite anybody you run across, you invite them as many as you can find, call them to come to the celebration of my son. Look at verse 10. And so those servants went out into the roads, and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, what does that mean? That when they went out, they invited both bad and good. Well, that just means from the viewpoint of the world, those invited run the gamut. You see, folks, the church is made up of the wicked of society, and the church is made up of the good. Yes or no? You know, the invitation doesn't... This is the great thing about the invitation to come celebrate the sun. I said it doesn't depend on race or ethnicity or, or gender or social status. It also doesn't depend on moral character. He doesn't say, just go out and find the good people and invite them to come. He says, invite anybody. Find the, find the homosexuals. Find the drunkards. Find the slanderers. Find the liars. Invite them to come as well. If you find people that are loyal and honest and hardworking and tax-paying and upright, invite them. But if you find those who are wretched, vile, and rotten, invite them too. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.11 when he gives this long list, homosexuality, slanders, liars, drunkards, and he says what? And such were some of you. See, everybody's called. Everybody's invited to this celebration of the Son. You see, God is a seeking God, and He is seeking those who will come and celebrate His Son. And morality is not an issue. Everybody's welcome. Everybody is invited. So He's not just even seeking moral people. He's seeking anyone who will come. Now, with a few minutes that we got left, we need to ask a question. Which group are you? Which group are you? You see, there are three groups represented in this parable so far. There's the indifferent. Remember those guys that just said, hey, I got to go to my farm. I got to go to my business. Uh, my, my football team's playing uh, this weekend. I can't make it. They're the indifferent. Then you got the hostile. These are the ones that killed his servants, that they hate the king. And then you've got the attenders. These are the ones that said, oh, there's a, there's a king a feast celebrating the, the, the king, the son. I'll come. Everybody with me? Those are your three groups. You got the indifference, you got the hostile, and you got the attenders. Now, you and I are in one of those groups. Now, I'm going to make an assumption this morning that because you are here in church this morning, that means you're not indifferent because you're here. It also means probably that you're not hostile because you're here. 
In other words, I'm going to assume that everyone here this morning, sitting under the sound of my voice, is an attender. You have received an invitation to come celebrate the sun, and you've come. Everybody with me? Because you're, you're here. I'm going to make that assumption. Now look at verse 11 through 12, because this is talking about us. But when the king came in to look at the guests, the attenders, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Now, I don't really know what this wedding garment is. Okay, I, I looked it up, I tried to figure it out, I, I couldn't really figure out what a wedding garment is. But what we do know is this guy was dressed in a way that he shouldn't have been dressed. It would be like a man, if we had a funeral for somebody tomorrow and somebody walked in without a shirt, shorts and flip-flops, that wouldn't be right, would it? In fact, that guest, that, to, for somebody to do that would be offensive because it would show that he, he, he doesn't understand the situation. He doesn't under, understand the event. He doesn't understand the significance of what's going on. Well, that's exactly what happened to this guy. In some way, he's underdressed. In some way, he's not dressed appropriately. And he stands out like a sore thumb. And the king recognizes him uh, immediately. So, so the point is, is that everybody's dressed properly except this, this guy. He, do, he doesn't have on the proper garment. And, and when he's called out, he is absolutely speechless. Now, he doesn't give an excuse because, let's face it, he don't have one. You see, the emphasis here is on the guilt of that man. Um, there, there's a movie out called The Wedding Crasher. This guy is the, he's the first wedding crasher, okay? He's there not, listen, he's there not to celebrate the sun. He's there for his own reasons, right? He's there for the food. He's there for the distraction from, from just a, dream, a, a dim and dreary life. He's there for the dancing. He's there for the party. He's there for the wine, whatever. But he's there for his own reasons. He's not there to celebrate the sun. He's not there to show the respect for, for the king. He's just there for his own, his own reasons. Now, what is that garment? What, what does that represent? What does it symbolize in the parable? Well, the parable doesn't tell us, but we always let Scripture interpret Scripture. Job 29, 14 says this, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Isaiah 61, 10, For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. You see, in the end, there are two kinds of people who show up to celebrate the sun. In fact, there are two kinds of people in churches today. And I hope there's only one kind in this room, but the odds are there might be two kinds in this room. That is ones who are clothed in the righteousness of God, and that is ones who are clothed in the filthy rags of their own self-righteousness. Those are the two people that come to the celebration of the sun. You see, there's a lot of people in church today that said, oh, I've come to celebrate Jesus. But the fact is, they're standing there in the rags of their own self-righteousness. They've never been clothed. They've never had a born-again experience. They've never been regenerated. They've never become a new creation. They're not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They're just clothed in their own self-righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 
which is Paul's one of the, the best verses in the Bible that actually explains the gospel, says this, For our sake he made him who knew to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, he clothes you or garments you in his righteousness. The Bible says that his righteousness is imputed or credited to us. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see all the nasty mess we've done throughout our life and thought and said. He just sees the blood of Jesus Christ. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him I might become the righteousness of God. You see, when you look back over the parable, everyone ends up being called, do they not? Jews, Gentiles, good, bad, rich, poor, men, women, black, white. It doesn't matter. Everybody is called. It's what he said in Matthew 23, 22.3. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the feast. And those who were disinterested and indifferent, they were called. Those who were hostile were called. Finally, after none of them will come, he just says, okay, go call everybody. Go call the good, the bad, the ugly, the good-looking. The, the, just call them everybody. So when he says many are called, he literally means a lot of people. But you see, in the end, the indifferent are judged, the hostile are judged, and anyone that thinks they can show up clothed in their own garments of self-righteousness, they're going to be judged as well. Jesus had said earlier that the kingdom is going to be taken away. In one of our uh, parables last week, he said the kingdom, I think it's a parable of the tenants, said the kingdom will be taken away from you, Jews, and given to a people that produce its fruits. You see, the wedding invitation is an open invitation, but there is a dress code. You ever been to somewhere before and you got an invitation and uh, hopefully you never, this has never happened, but you get there and you're not dressed properly, they won't let you in. See, everybody's called. Everybody's invited, but there is a dress code. See, everybody's welcome at the table, but coming to the table has to change you. It has to produce fruits inside of you, the fruits of righteousness. And if it doesn't, then you're not truly a guest. You're just there for your own, your own reasons. You see, at the end of the day, if you're not here to really celebrate the sun, if you're here just because mom and daddy want you to be here, if you're here just because if I'm not here, people are going to talk about me, if you're here just because it's a social status thing, in the end, you're just a wedding crasher. That's all you are. And eventually... The king will call you out and have you removed. Look at verses 13 and 14. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind that man hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You, I, I, I picture a wedding here. And in this wedding there's light and there's laughter and there's joy and there's celebration. And he says, You take him outside where it's dark. That's judgment. There's no laughter out there. There's no light out there. There's no celebration out there. There's no fellowship out there. None of the things that make life good are out there. You bind him hand and foot and you take him outside apart from all of this. And then Jesus makes this incredible statement to sum it all up. Because this is, this is how he's summing up the parable right here. For, that word means because. Because. Many 
are called, but only a few are chosen. Many are called, but only a few are chosen. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, as I said, this sums up the entire parable. That is Jesus' comment or commentary on that parable. And by the way, this had to be the final straw, I think, for, the, for, these, for these religious leaders. Because, see, as Jews, they thought what? They were chosen. See, we're the chosen ones. We're the chosen nation. We're the chosen people. And Jesus says, you're not chosen. You're not I mean, this, this has got to be just stick a dagger in them. This is, has, I mean, they, this has to drive them crazy. Now, what this parable is teaching us, and, and we can see this now with Jesus' statement, is that God is calling everyone to come and believe on His Son. God is calling everyone to believe the gospel, to believe the good news. But it is possible to refuse. Many people did then. The Jews did then. Many people continue to refuse today. And Jesus is teaching us that those that refuse will be thrown into judgment, be thrown into outer darkness. They are culpable for refusing to believe. But don't miss this. It is possible to respond to the invitation in a non-saving way. Let me say that again. It is possible to respond to that invitation in a non-saving way. You see, the man in the parable came to the wedding, did he not? He came to the celebration. But, but the fact that he didn't have the proper garment proved that he didn't belong there. And he is justly judged. He is justly banished or put out of the, of the wedding celebration. Matthew 7, 22 to 23. This was Sermon on the Mount probably a year or so earlier. Jesus says this, On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I teach Sunday school for you? Didn't I show up at 915 at River of Life week after week after week? Didn't I, didn't I, 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 I sing in the praise band? Didn't I serve on the church board? Didn't I work in the sound booth? Didn't I do, didn't I, when, when somebody needed prayer, didn't I come up and lay hands on them? Didn't I do all these things in your name? And he says, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. I never, we never had a relationship. You, you were coming every Sunday, but you were just doing it for your own reasons. You, you never had a born-again experience. You never recognized your sin and put your faith in me so that I could cover that sin with my blood and wrap you in the garment of my righteousness. You never did that. You see, only those clothed in the proper garment will attend the wedding supper of the Lamb. And what is that garment? Listen, at the end of the day, it's the righteousness of God. It is the gift of salvation freely offered in the gospel. Are you with me? Everybody agree? So who are those that receive the gift? Who are these people? Jesus says they're the chosen. Or as the Greek word, you'll see it in the Bible, depending on which... Uh, 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 translation you're using it calls them the elect that's what the greek word means it means the chosen ephesians 1 4 says this even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him the bible tells me that the king chose me 
before I was ever born. The king chose me before he said, let there be light. He had already chosen me. You see, you cannot be saved, folks, without God choosing you. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul writes to Timothy and said this, talking about God, he said this, He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of your works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus at the moment we believed, before the ages began, before time began. Listen, at the same time, don't get me wrong here. Every, it is every person's responsibility. Just like that man in that wedding. It is every person's responsibility to choose God by believing in his son. The jailer in, in Acts 16 comes out to Paul and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul say? What did he say? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know what you need to do to be saved? Believe. What do you need to do to be saved? Believe. Anybody that came and asked me this morning, what do I need to be saved? I tell you, believe. Do we choose God? Absolutely. We are responsible for choosing God. But Scripture is also extremely clear that God chooses us first. God chooses us before we choose Him. Now, is that hard to reconcile? Absolutely. It's, it's extremely hard to reconcile. But Jesus said, many are called, but only a few are chosen. Only a few are elected. You see, the Bible, when you read the Bible, you come up on this over and over and over again. Jesus told the disciples, you didn't choose me, what? I chose you, right? You see it over and over again. He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And, 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 and Nicodemus says, well, how, how in the world can that happen? Can a man go into his mother's womb and come out a second time? And Jesus said, no, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like the wind that blows and you hear it, but you don't know where it comes and, and goes. That's, it. that's how every, it is with everyone that's born to the kingdom. The Holy Spirit just comes in and boom. Listen, I don't understand it, but the Bible clearly teaches. You choose him, he chooses you. It doesn't try to reconcile them. It just presents them side by side. All right, next week, I wanted to finish up a little bit early. We are done with parables, and I am super excited about where we're going to go next. Next week, we enter into a study of Genesis, okay? Uh, I have wanted to do Genesis for a long, long time. It's always been on my, been on my list to do. Um, yes, it's 50 chapters. Do not panic. Immediately, you know, it took me two years to go through Romans, and it was only 16 chapters. Uh, so you're thinking 50 chapters, we may be here till Jesus comes back. Well, that could be, because we don't know when he's coming. But I, I'm not going to go necessarily verse by verse. It, you know, if we get to a long, uh, you know, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, we're not going to go each begat, right? We're going we're gonna to cover it in sections. So I don't think it'll take, uh, you know, I don't know. If I was to guess, I'd say probably about a year and a half. Um, it'll take us. That sounds odd, doesn't it? Doesn't that just sound odd that we're going to start a study and, 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 and say we'll be here a year and a half? And it's almost like, well, how can we do that, right? But we just do it a Sunday. After, we were in the parables for about 10 months. Um, and it seems like it went by to me. Just I don't know about y'all, but it just seems like it went by like that. Listen, I've been studying in Genesis already to prepare for this. 
like I said, I am really excited. I've already learned several things uh, just it, just getting ready for it that I didn't know. And um, so, I, and I'll tell you something that I learned about Genesis that is amazing to me. As you go down through the New Testament and all the major doctrines, all the major teachings of the New Testament, from the doctrine of, of redemption to the doctrine of salvation to the doctrines of grace, they're all found in Genesis. They all start in Genesis. It's not, I mean, Genesis, they're all sitting right there in front of us. They just get developed as you move down through um, time. So we'll begin there next week. Um, we'll start with an introduction, and the week after we'll begin with, uh, with Genesis 1-1. So, again, if you want to go somewhere else, if you've got another class, um, I, that's fine. It's a good time to do it because we're starting something new. Um, but uh, if you, listen, if you know somebody, the other day, Mama gave me a book on the Beatitudes for, uh, for Christmas, and I've been reading that. And I got to the third Beatitude, and it said this, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And I got to thinking, am I, is that what's driving me? You know, that word blessed in the Hebrew means happy. Happy are those. You want to be happy? Hunger and thirst after righteousness, and you will be filled. You will get what you're looking for. And I got to thinking, is that driving me in this year? Is that what I'm hungry for? Is that what I'm thirsting for? And I thought, you know, how can I say, and I don't mean to put anybody down, but how can you say you're hungry and thirsty after righteousness and you're not in a Bible study? I don't see how those two go together. If you know somebody this year that's not in a Bible study, invite them. It doesn't matter if it's this one or somebody else's. That's fine. But we need to be in a Bible study together under teachers studying the Word of God. I don't know any other way to put that. If we're going to have revival, if we're going to grow this church, we need strong men and women of God that can be disciplers and mentors and counselors for the people that are coming in. Because I can tell you, the people that are being saved today, they don't know nothing about church. It ain't like it was 50 years ago when everybody went to church. Today, people are coming, they don't know anything. We need people that know the Scripture that can counsel and mentor and disciple these people that are going to be coming into River of Life in 2018. So, I appreciate you guys being here, but let's, let's step it up, right? Bring somebody with you if you can. Invite somebody you know. Um, it's a new study. I'm going to make it as interesting as I possibly can. But uh, let me tell you, we're going to learn about God. That Genesis is all about the Creator. It's all about Him. And I think we're going to come out of that uh, seeing Him in a way maybe that we haven't in a while. Let's pray. Father.